The 2020 film One Night in Miami tells the story of a fictional meeting between Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke in February 1964. Malcolm X and Cook get into a disagreement over how they should be helping the cause of black equality in America. Cook accuses Malcolm X of doing nothing but standing up on a podium and trying to piss people off, and always being pissed off himself. Malcolm X responds. Say pissed off, Brother Sam? You know what is going on around us? It should make everyone angry. Huh? You know, you bourgeois Negroes, you're too happy uh, with your scraps. That is why, Brother Sam, this, this movement that we are in is called a struggle. Because we are fighting for our lives. Is it wrong to be pissed off? To be angry? Agnes Callard, professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, doesn't think so. Callard argues that we've thought about anger in the wrong terms. I think that anger is kind of two things. One is it's the perception of a moral wrong. And the other is, it's an inclination to vengeance, to retribution. And I think those two things are tied together. Traditionally, philosophers have agreed that anger is morally acceptable as long as it is for the right reasons, expressed in the right way, and directed towards the right goals. Anger should be provoked by injustice. It should be expressed peacefully, not violently. And it should be directed toward reparations and peace not towards revenge. Imagine someone passes you in the street and punches you in the face, or makes a racial slur. According to the traditional philosophical arguments, it is all right to get angry if you peacefully state your opposition and seek a lasting peace with the perpetrator. That kind of anger is justified. That kind is morally pure. But anger, Callard argues, can never be fully purified. And yet we still need to get angry. This is Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we take up the question of anger. Valorizing anger goes back as far as the ancient epic poems of Homer. Here's how his Iliad begins. Rage. Goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles. Murderous. Doomed. That cost the Achaeans countless losses hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls. This rage belongs to Achilles, the great Greek soldier of the Trojan War who lived in a warrior culture that glorified fury in battle. But the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle valued anger for a different reason. Like pro-anger philosophers today, he thought anger was like a moral alarm bell, alerting us to the presence of moral injustice. If you get angry at someone, it's often because they deserve it. Maybe they stole something from you, or they're a hypocrite, or they wear socks with Birkenstocks. But others were more skeptical about the value of anger. They worried about its destructive tendencies. The Roman philosopher Seneca saw anger not as a moral gauge, but a form of madness. He called it, quote, a falling rock that breaks itself to pieces upon the very thing which it crushes. The anti-anger camp doesn't like how anger looks backward, lusting for revenge, and multiplying harm upon harm in a never-ending cycle. Instead, they argue that the better response to injustice is to look forward and focus on preventing similar events in the future. 
But for Agnes Callard, the pro-anger and anti-anger philosophers are both making the same mistake. They both think it is possible to separate the moral and immoral parts of anger and keep the good parts while getting rid of the bad. They just give the good parts of anger different names, like righteous anger or indignation. In contrast, Callard argues that there can't be any purely moral anger because the supposed dark sides of anger, vengeance, bloodlust, and limitless violence, may be, quote, baked into the very idea of morality. It's a startling and even disturbing idea that vengeance and violence are core to the nature of morality. But consider the nature of many justice systems throughout history, including our system today. When someone commits a violent crime, they are apprehended and punished, sometimes with incarceration, sometimes even with death. We respond to one harm by harming the perpetrator. Our justice is, in fact, a kind of revenge. This is why Callard argues that it is impossible for humans to respond rightly to being treated wrongly. Or put another way, we can't be good in a bad world. The 2004 film Crash shows one couple trying to navigate a bad world. A black couple is pulled over by the cops, and one officer physically molests the woman, Christine, while her husband Cameron watches. Back at home, Christine is furious with her husband because he didn't get angry. He did nothing. Who are you calling? I don't report their asses, sons of bitches. You actually believe they're going to take anything you have to say seriously? Do you have any idea how that felt? To have that pig's hands all over me? And you just stood there. And then you apologized to him? I mean, what did you want me to do? Get us both shot? As this couple debates the right way to respond to police injustice, they draw us towards Keller's conclusion. There are no morally pure responses to immorality. Responding with anger is morally problematic, but a lack of anger can be problematic too. Callard believes that when we face injustice, we should get angry. That does mean submitting ourselves to some degree of moral corruption. But that's a price we accept because the alternative, doing nothing and accepting injustice, is even worse. The anger is a sign that you're still in some sense holding that person to standards. And so I think it's, it is a sense of hope in the sense that it's a recognition of the other as in some way living in the same moral community with you, at least in the sense of being subject to a set of moral standards. For Maisha Cherry, a philosophy professor at UC Riverside, the question of anger's moral purity is simply the wrong question. It's not about how people are angry, but why. In the spring of 1961, a Princeton historian named Eric Goldman hosted a discussion with James Baldwin about civil rights on the NBC public affairs show, The Open Mind. Goldman asked Baldwin what he thought about the tactics of resistance being used by the civil rights movement in the 60s. Implied in the question was concern about how the marches, protests, and other expressions of public anger were making white Americans uncomfortable and even fearful. Baldwin pushed back. The question shouldn't be whether the civil rights movement was using the right tactics, but whether white people were ready to face up to their knowledge of the injustice committed by whites against black people. All the liberals that I've ever known are, are working day and night, and not only, um, not only uh, in terms of not letting a Negro live next door to them, but in terms of their own minds, their own consciences, their own uh, way of life, 
to protect themselves against the crime for which they know they are responsible. Professor Cherry reflects on Baldwin's response. Baldwin kind of responds back, and he basically says, uh, what we need to do is to kind of think about what is the cause of their resistance, what is the cause of their, their anger, what is the cause of these emotions and attitudes that quote-unquote Negroes have, right? That's what, that's what we need to be talking about. Um, because it's, it's, it, we can't solve the problem without really getting at the root of the cause. And for him, of course, the, the root of the cause was indeed the attitudes and, and beliefs and the actions of, of, of white folks and white citizens. Philosophical questions about the morality of anger may be interesting, says Cherry. But she questions whether they are the most important questions we need to be asking. The more relevant questions are about the causes of anger. So what is missing is dealing with the issues, the problems, trying to fix that before we decide to fix the responses of those who are responding to that injustice. Some contemporary Black leaders have reclaimed anger as a necessary response to injustice. Here's Black Lives Matter leader Tamika Mallory speaking in Minnesota in the summer of 2020 after the killing of George Floyd. No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. No justice. And if we don't get no justice, there ain't going to be no damn peace. That's the bottom line. On John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, author and activist Kimberly Jones put it this way. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Traditionally, revenge has been considered the morally impure side of anger, the part that prefers destructive retribution over constructive reparations. But Cherry does not think that moral purity or innocence is the right thing to focus on here. She argues that we should be concerned with acknowledging our past mistakes and crimes as a nation, expressing solidarity with victims of oppression, and mobilizing the strength to fight for a better future. Anger can help us accomplish all of these things. Now, even though this kind of anger might be necessary in the fight for justice, it isn't by definition virtuous or moral or innocent. In fact, Cherry points out in her writing that maintaining anger at injustice can come at a high personal cost. It can strain or ruin relationships and take a painful psychological toll. But we can't get rid of those costs just by getting rid of anger. We often think of anger as the opposite of forgiveness. Forgiveness, then, should have all of the moral innocence and uplift that anger lacks. But the truth is, forgiveness also requires painful sacrifices, sometimes even more so than anger. And good evening from this beautiful city where what unfolded just a few steps from here last night is almost too much to bear. It happened at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, Mother Emmanuel, as everyone here calls it, Wednesday night prayer service and Bible study, all welcome, no questions asked. A young man walked in, took a seat, and waited for up to an hour. And then police say Dylan Ruff stood up and started shooting. In the end, there were nine dead, one injured, and countless broken hearts here. A stunning act of mass murder in a predominantly African-American house of worship. And tonight, it's being investigated as a hate crime. As the FBI investigated this 2015 shooting, it quickly became clear that Dylan Roof had been radicalized to embrace a white supremacist neo-Nazi ideology. 
the public reaction was universal revulsion. He was called a monster and a domestic terrorist. There was even frustration that he was arrested alive instead of being shot on sight. The victims' families, however, took a different approach. In the deposition, in honor of the victims, each representative of a victim's family publicly forgave Ruth. Here is victim Reverend DePayne Middleton's sister speaking directly to Ruth in the courtroom. The Reverend's sister stated both that she was angry and that she wanted to forgive him. For me, I'm a work in progress, and I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing DePayne has always joined in and our family with is that she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate. So we have to forgive, and I pray God on your soul. What Dylan Roof did was not a harm that could be made right. No compensation could restore the lives lost or hearts broken. In a public conversation with Agnes Callard, the writer Elizabeth Brunig starts from this premise, that harms can never truly be undone. When someone harms you, that never goes away, and you never get back what you lost. Right. So we have this strange convention where people try to make it up to you with money. You're like, what? If you if I'm walking down the street and you punch me in the face and I take you to court or whatever, you know, you can be criminally punished and then civilly you can have to pay me money. I don't want fucking money. I want my face unpunched. Like I want that Tuesday back where I was walking down the street and I had a plan for the rest of my nice day in mind. And it happened. That's what I want back. You cannot have it. Right? And I, what the fuck is money supposed to do? Once you, once you harm, it's forever. It goes in eternity. You can never recover it. Brunig is herself Christian. And she points out how difficult Christian teaching on forgiveness actually is. That is forgiveness. It's not fair. And you can do all the mitigation you want. But when Jesus says, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek, what he means is when someone hurts you, I'm going to ask you to incur some more pain. That's forgiveness. It's just abject. Someone hurts you and you hurt yourself a little more. You relinquish that claim you have on them. You say, I'm not going to pursue it. This hurts in the sense that now I don't even get this uh, sort of pleasure of vengeance I don't get uh, the pleasure of recompense in some kind of way. And I find that to be really interesting. And it's also an extremely hard pill to swallow. Forgiving someone doesn't mean the end of personal pain. It often means even more pain. We sacrifice even the comfort of our righteous anger. But such forgiveness is necessary for peace in a world where we are constantly and unavoidably harming one another. Maisha Cherry agrees with Brunig that the therapeutic conception of forgiveness is often an empty promise. But she thinks forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean abandoning our anger. Forgiveness consists of a set of practices. It's not just one. Um, it's several I can engage in. And usually the aim of that particular uh, social or moral practice is either to get relief, relief or repair. Um, and 
Um, I think, unfortunately, for a lot of us, uh, we've had kind of a narrow view of what we think forgiveness is. So we think that if forgiveness is just the letting go of anger. And so if you haven't let go of your anger, you haven't forgiven. Right. And I don't I don't think that's the case. I think I think forgiveness can be whatever <laughs> a, a variety of more practices with several kinds of kinds of aims. And so with that being the case, um, I think you can forgive someone and still have expressed anger towards them. Like Brunig and Callard, Cherry sees forgiveness as a potential mechanism to stem the violence that can flow from vengeful anger. Dylan Roof wanted to start a race war. For the Black victims, forgiveness became a way to thwart his goal, to resist white supremacy, and to build peace. A part of me wants to say in relationship to the, the Dylan Roof case, um, I, think that, I, I think that people can do or express a variety of emotions and attitudes um, as ways to resist. Um, certain kinds of oppressions and also resist certain kinds of messages and communicate certain kinds of messages. And so if a person says that, you know, I, they've used their forgiveness in order to um, um, halt the intentions of a wrongdoer, um, I will listen to what they have to say and I accept <laughs> and I agree um, with their act of resistance in that particular regard. Um, um, and I think that's up to the moral agent to, to, to do that. I think, I think our moral concepts, our moral toolkits um, is so vast. Anger cannot be morally pure, but neither are we. We all have light and dark inside of us. Our anger manifests some of our darkness. But if we attempt to suppress and remove all anger from ourselves or from others, we can lose some things that are valuable and necessary. Consider one recent example. In 2021, English teacher and PhD candidate Wendy Lennon organized a virtual conference on Shakespeare, race, and pedagogy. In her closing remarks, she spoke to her reasons for creating this event, which brought more than 600 people together from around the globe. One of Lennon's reasons was anger. Anger often has a bad reputation and can manifest itself in damaging ways, as we've seen in the world, and whether that's an angry tweet or unkindness. Um, women of colour, black women especially, are displayed and dehumanised through the negative trope of the angry black woman. So I'm being honest with you, this event was born out of anger. Anger and sadness at being silenced. However, I hope this week has shown you that when we experience, notice, or feel the anger of injustice, that we harness its creative power. I have used that fuel not to send an angry tweet or to be unkind, but to create this event and bring us all together. Anger is like a fever. It is not easy or pleasant. It's a warning system. It makes us shake and sweat. But it does help us to know that something is wrong, despite or because of its distressing qualities. And this means anger can be more than just a warning system. It can be a catalyst to fix what is wrong. And anger transformed into positive, creative power can even help us heal. This episode was produced by Leah Rechtman and Maria Devlin-McNair in partnership with Boston Review.
Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School by Nick Anderson, me, Zachary Davis, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I'd like to recommend to you one Hub & Spoke show, The Constant, A History of Getting Things Wrong. In a fantastic episode, host Mark Chrysler explores a small mistake on an old map that led directly to a war between Michigan and Ohio, all over the city of Toledo. Check it out at constantpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.